Welcome everybody to the Tripolitan. My name is Rafat Yamak. Today we will be going over Ali ibn Hussein, the biography of Ali ibn Hussein written by Abdullah Rabat. I'm extremely excited to have you on today, Abdullah. This is my first episode, uh, the first episode of the Tripolitan, and I couldn't be happier to have you on today. Same here. I'm glad to be on. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, I'm just curious, um, out of all the personalities, what inspired you to write about Ali ibn Hussein? And who is Ali ibn Hussein? Well, <clears throat> the reasons that inspired me are, are, are pretty unique, as they, are, they would be for any person. Um, as you may know, I come from, my family comes from Syria and, uh, our region of the world generally has been plagued with, uh, some sectarian strife, uh, namely a Sunni Shia divide that's been taking place for quite some time. And it's, it's manifesting today in a brutal civil war. So in Syria right now, we're experiencing a, an interesting exchange between, uh, Tassinun and Tashayar, you know, live on the ground. And it includes an ideological exchange as well. And so within the last five, ten years, we observed a rise in, you know, Shia channels, Shia websites, Shia books being distributed in, in the Arab world. And so I I caught that early on and I just was interested in Tashayar, generally speaking, uh, being a Sunni Syrian from Damascus. And um Given my interest in hadith as well, uh, it just meshed together and uh, this book was a byproduct. So, so that's a, a rough outline of why. Um, we can get into the details, uh, you know. Yeah, no, no, that's interesting, man. Honestly, um, I mean, it, it's just, it's interesting how you talked about uh, your Syrian background because it's really not just Syria in general. It's really Bilad uh, al-Sham, like even in Lebanon, where I'm originally from. You also have this rise of sectarianism that has, I think, sparked a lot of curiosity in people, whether Sunnis or Shias, kind of to better understand the other side um, and to learn more about their uh, theology, really. Uh, so anyways, like as I mentioned before, uh, you know, in previous calls with you, uh, Ali ibn Hussein is such a fascinating personality to go into because there's barely any, in my, I mean, from what I've seen at least in, in English, any uh, books written about him from a Sunni perspective. Usually you always have books written about the Alawiyin or the Alid family. It's usually written from Shi'i sources or from Oriental sources, but nothing from a Sunni Muslim perspective, from the English, in English at least. Um, have you come across that by any chance when it comes to uh, the Alid family from books or material from Sunni sources? Well, you see... The reality of the matter is that this stems from, from a greater issue, which is, I often get asked by, by Muslims, by Sunnis, and, and some Shias, believe it or not. They ask me, well, why, why don't Sunnis, you know, on their pulpits mention Ahlul Bayt? Why don't they teach about the people from Ahlul Bayt and, and the notable figures? And the reality of the matter is, uh, I, this question underlines certain premises and assumptions about Ahlul Bayt. The, the real answer to your question is that people like Ali ibn al-Hussein and others from his descendants, they are outshined by people who had more knowledge recorded from them, who were more significant in history, and uh, just played a greater role in the bigger picture. And so for that reason, for example, um, 
you know, if you look at how much ahadith, for example, Ali ibn Hussein transmitted and, and compare it to other people, um, you, you see that these people in reality are not as significant as it's being assumed by, for example, some, some of the Shia sects. Now, does it mean that they're not insignificant? No. It's just that these kinds of questions usually have this underlying premise, right? Which is, you know, why aren't you doing this? Uh, well, let's first assess his, his true status and then we can talk about that. Yeah. Ali ibn Hussein is still would be considered a, would be considered a tabi'i, for example, correct? Uh, yeah. So Ali ibn Hussein is a tabi'i. He met several companions of the Prophet. He met Jabir ibn Abdullah. He met ibn Abbas. His father, Al-Hussein, I mean, was a Sahabi as well, but very minor Sahabi. Um, so yeah, he's a tabi'i, he's a respectable, revered person uh, in our sources, albeit not as uh, as revered as in, you know, in the Twelver theology or Ismaili theology. Right, right. And in the, in the Shi'i or in the Twelver theology, he would be considered the fourth imam, correct? So Twelvers and Ismailis, they consider Ali ibn Hussein to be the fourth imam after Al-Hussein. All right. And this, and this is the Hussein we're talking about, the Hussein who was, you know, who was martyred in Karbala, correct? This is the Hussein, just to make it clear to the audience. Yeah, so his father is Al-Hussein ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, uh, the son of Ali and the grandson of the Prophet, martyred yeah. at Karbala. His mother right. was uh, a slave girl mm -hmm. owned by Al-Hussein, concubine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's pretty much the general background of this figure's life. Yeah, um, like I said, man, it's uh, it was when I when I read the book, I was uh, fascinated with so many things, uh, and we're gonna you know briefly go over some of the chapters that you go over. Um, you know, one of the things that you wrote in the beginning that kind of um, was interesting to me was you described this biography as a biography of historical Ali, uh, not theological Ali. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail what you mean by that between historical Ali and theological Ali? Sure. So today, in the 21st century, or the 15th century Hijri, we have many different sects, schools, movements within Islam that share common ground, right? So let, let's compare, for example, Ahl-Sunnah and the uh, 12er Shias. Okay. They have the common ground that, you know, they believe in a man by the name of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, they believe that he called to Tawheed, the day of judgment, fasting in Ramadan, um, that the Prophet should be obeyed and followed, that he migrated to, from Mecca to Medina. There, there's a lot of shared history that we agree upon, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, our historiographies or our stories of the Prophet fundamentally diverge at various points in the seerah. And that divergence continues after his death. Yes. And so we have different stories of the same events, different right. retellings of the same historical events. And so what, what I mean by the historical Ali ibn Hussein is I'm attempting to discern his biography from the sources which I believe are, which I believe are the most reliable and most representative uh, of his true life, his, mm -hmm. the true historical figure, as opposed to the theological Hussein, Ali ibn Hussein, who is is a caricature of the real figure in, in contemporary Shia sources and whatnot. Okay, I see, I see. Okay, that makes sense. Um, because going into theological Ali would probably require a whole, that's a whole other book right there. 
um, going into uh, that kind of aspect. That's why I was kind of interested to see. Did you ever, I mean, so obviously as Sunni Muslims, you know, we, we look at the Bukhari and Muslim and we acknowledge their authenticity. Are there any hadiths in Shi'i books, like for example, like Kitab al-Kafi that you find, you know, based on, you know, from your experience as a hadith student, reliable or is it all of it just unreliable? Oh boy, that's a, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, okay. So the thing with with Shia sources is they 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 diverge and converge with Sunni sources on different levels. So sometimes you'll find that it's like a Venn diagram, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You have in the middle you have sometimes shared traditions between both sects. So you'll find a hadith uh, in Sunni sources that is ascribed to Abu Huraira, for example, relayed through Abu Huraira. And, and you'll find it in Al-Kafi ascribed to Ja'far al-Saliq. Right? I see, okay. So it's a different isnad. But the same metan. transmission. Yeah, uh, okay. same metan. So that happens sometimes. Okay. At the same time, so that's one form where you, you do see the same traditions, albeit with, with differences, right? Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you... And this is not that common, but it happens. You'll find a tradition authentically ascribed to Ja'far al-Sadiq in our sources. Mm-hmm. And it'll also be ascribed to him in, in Shi'i sources. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, one of the few things that, you know, as a Sunni, you can say, okay, this is something that is right. But it's not, it's not the, the predominant, you know, form of traditions. And then you have pretty much everything else, which is stuff that is exclusively found in, in Shi'i sources. Uh, we're talking about fiqh positions. We're mm-hmm. talking about um, theology, sirah, uh, all kinds of things, metaphysics, fadail, mm-hmm. being ascribed to Ja'far al-Sadiq, where we do not find them being ascribed to him elsewhere in right. the Sunni sources and whatnot. So okay. to, to summarize, you know, the answer to your question, if I look mm-hmm. at Al-Kafi, most of the transmitters in it are unknown, uh, according to our standards. Okay. And uh, pretty, you pretty much cannot verify anything in the book unless it's authentically relayed outside the book in our sources. I see. Very interesting. Um, okay, so as I, as I mentioned before, um, you know, I love reading the book. It was interesting. Um, and there was a chapter about his upbringing, uh, Ali's upbringing, and obviously then it um, goes on to you know, that, that pivotal moment in his life uh, which is his father's death, uh, Hussein ibn Ali. Uh, based on your readings, and you touch upon this in your book as well, how do you think, I mean, obviously it's his father, but still, how was that moment when Hussein was slain in, in, in the battle? How did that affect Ali ibn Hussein? And how did it mold him to become the man that he became eventually? Okay, so uh, to take a step back, so what happened, for some people might not know the, the actual story, so I'll, I'll give a brief summary. Uh, what happened is that um, uh, when Yazid became the caliph mm-hmm. after his father Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan, Hussein ibn Ali did not want to be forced to be pledged to, to pledge allegiance to Yazid. He, he felt he felt it was humiliating, um, and so he fled to Mecca. So he was in Medina. Mm-hmm. He fled to Mecca with his with his household and his family and everything, and he stayed in Medina. Um, uh, sorry, he stayed in Mecca for some time, several months. Right. And in, in Mecca, he met the Sahabi, the junior Sahabi, Abdullah ibn Zubair. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, who has a whole story to himself as well. Yeah, that's a whole different story. Yeah, and uh, he was telling him, "I want to leave because I know that the Kaaba, essentially, its its sanctity will be uh, violated because of a man staying inside." Mm -hmm. Right, I, I I don't want to be that man. Mm -hmm. So Abdullah ibn Zubair suggests, you know, why don't you go to Kufa? Uh, the, you know, these are your father's supporters. Ali ibn Abi Talib's capital was in Kufa when he was the Khalifa. They're mm -hmm. your people and they'll support you. And, and eventually, uh, Ali actually went. Sorry, Hussein actually went. Mm -hmm. Traveled from Mecca to Kufa. And he, he would receive letters from the people of Kufa inviting him prior to that. And so the Umayyads eventually realized what had happened, right? Uh, that there's a mobilization taking place. This person is going to Kufa. And so they intercepted him outside the city of Kufa in, in a land called Karbala. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what ended up happening is that uh, a, a battle ended up taking place between Al-Hussein and his very few descendants and relatives and a, a large Umayyad army that mm -hmm. was diverted. It was initially going to a Daylam in northern Iran. Mm -hmm. But they turned around and they, they realized, okay, uh, let's confront al Hussein. He might revolt. Right. And so his father was slain on that day. Now, on that day, Ali ibn Hussein was around 24 years old, according mm -hmm. to the more reliable estimates. Yeah, I saw uh, there was some debate. Sorry to cut you off. I know there was some yeah. debate about that, how old he was when Hussein passed away. But it seems like 24 is the most reliable age. Yeah, at least something in that range. Now it might okay. not be exact, right, right? right? It may be one or two years, one or two years off, or or a bit more than that. But that's the general, you know, estimate. And uh, now several of his brothers died. So his older brother Ali. Mm -hmm. So we have two Ali's, two Ali ibn al Husseins, right? You have Ali ibn Hussein al Akbar and Ali ibn Hussein al Azgar. Right. Al Akbar died. He was killed. He was slain in the battle of Karbala with with other brothers and and relatives of Ali ibn al Hussein. And Ali ibn Hussein al-Asghar, um, who is the subject of my biography, he survived. Now, some sources like Al-Waqidi mentioned that he was sick on that day mm -hmm. and, and he hence did not partake in the battle and was spared. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to come across anything authentic about that that can verify this claim. But what we can, what we do know is that he survived for some reason, and it it is possible that he was sick on that day and was spared. Mm -hmm. So his family died, uh, you know, in front of him in a battle, and what I've, I mean, it clearly was traumatic, and they were transported, uh, they were driven to Damascus after that, mm -hmm. um, back to Yazid, to right. Yazid's capital, and right. And this and this this army this army was led by Ibn Ziyad, the one in in Karbala. Uh, yeah, so you have Ubaidullah bin Ziyad, you have right. Umar bin Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas. Yes, that, that's uh, honestly, you know, that's that one really breaks my heart, man. The Umar bin Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, that one is, uh, that's that's a tough one to know that yeah. he part, partook in that. Well, subhanAllah, it, it goes both ways, you know. Right, right. Um, there are, yani, Umar bin Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, for example, uh, I think Yahya bin Ma'in, the muhaddis, was asked about him. Mm -hmm. um, should hadith be written from him or, or is he reliable? Something like that. Yeah. And Yahya bin Ma'in said, uh, how can this killer of Al-Hussein be reliable? Right. Right. Now, of course, some hadithians still believe he's reliable as a transmitter. And, and that actually may be the case. Mm -hmm. You know, he might be a reliable transmitter. 
but he clearly is uh, condemned, and he was eventually slain for what he did with Al with Al Hussein. Yani. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I don't know how it exactly shaped his character because there's not a lot of uh, detail surrounding you know these these historical figures and their feelings and their their psychology. Right. But one, uh, one, yeah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but just one of the things that was uh, interesting to me re reading in the book that he was one of the, the one of the sole survivors from his uh from the his household and he was kind of uh trying to uh I guess I don't know the replenish his, you know the his household. He was trying to I think he had mm. several concubines. Um and he got married several times just to kind of uh you know compensate for the loss of so many of his relatives. Um, I thought that that was kind of interesting as well that he made that like his mission after his uh, his family was slain in that in that way in Karbala. So when it comes to the the Prophet's descendants, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, it much is through two people, two mm -hmm. main people, right? His grandson Al Hassan ibn mm -hmm. Ali ibn Abi Talib and his grandson Al Hussein. Mm -hmm. Now Al Hassan had so many children and a lot of them survived and had children and so the the Lineages branch out pretty early right. uh, for Al Hassan. Lots of families, lots of descendants. Because of, however, for Al Hussein, because of the massacre at Karbala, there pretty much was a bottleneck. Yep. And and the only surviving male descendant of Al Hussein is Ali ibn Al Hussein, uh, bin Ali ibn Abi Talib, the subject of my biography. Mm -hmm. And so, so all descendants of Al Hussein today actually are descendants of of this man. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to uh, the lineage, in the book, I mentioned a report where Marwan ibn al-Hakam actually is the one who suggests it. Yes. Right? Marwan ibn al-Hakam tells him, uh, you know, you, I, I see that your father's lineage has been severed, severed. Why don't you, you know, purchase concubines and father more, ch more children? And he tells him, I don't, I don't have money. And, and he lends him money, essentially. That's so interesting, man. It's that coming from Marwan ibn al-Hakam. Yeah, it's just very interesting. Yeah. Now, as for the authenticity of that report, it actually is is not clearly authentic. But but yes. I mentioned it because it it's what is it's the only thing I found on that. Mm. Now, for Marwan, it actually is interesting, right? Because if you look at Al Hassan and Al Hussein's life and Ali ibn Abi Talib's life, Marwan actually was pretty hostile to to Al Hassan and Al Hussein. And I mentioned mm -hmm. some of those reports in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right about yeah. where they're cursing each other, and Marwan is on the, on the on the pulpit cursing Ali ibn Abi Talib. Right, right. And uh, you know, exchange of insults between Al Hussein and Marwan. It's pretty bad. I mean, some of the accounts that you read are pretty extreme. Yeah. They clearly, they clearly hated each other. Now, after Al Hussein's ma you know massacre, it seems like there was no more perceived threat. Right. There, there's no fear that anymore of of any power rising. Uh, from Ahlul Bayt after Al Hassan and Al Hussein was were, were dead, and so you find the Zuhri Ibn Shihab Al Zuhri saying that uh, Ali Ibn Al Hussein was one of the most beloved people to Marwan Ibn Al Hakam uh, from the Hashmiyyin, hmm. right? Interesting. Yeah. And, and so they, it seems like they were not as uh, they did not have a, a tense relationship. And interestingly enough, if you go to Sahih Al Bukhari. And you look at Marwan ibn al-Hakam's reports in the book, they're actually transmitted through Ali ibn al-Hussein. Okay. Right? So he transmitted things from him as well. Mm -hmm. um, which is interesting, uh, nevertheless. But yeah. No, definitely. I mean, uh, 
like I said, I mean, Karbala is such a pivotal moment, a pivotal historical event in Islamic history, and uh, uh, so many different sects emerged from it that, you know, initially it was just political differences, and then it, you know, it morphed into theological differences. And, uh, you know, you, ha you have a chapter where you discuss, um, you know, just Ali ibn Hussein, he was learning from different people, more learned people in the city. And this kind of goes against kind of the, uh, the Shi'i narrative about how the imams, um, that they're ma'sumin or infallible, and that they can make tashri'ah introduce, you know, new religion um, after the Prophet Muhammad But it seems like even in Shi'i sources, it shows that there are deemed authentic. Uh, you mentioned that he, Ali ibn Hussein, was sitting and learning from uh, other, um, I can't recall the people that he was learning from, but more learned people, basically, basically, which he acknowledged that they were more, more learned. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting to kind of see that even in Shi'i sources that they have that. I'm not sure about the, the Shi'i sources for that one specific detail. Mm. Now, you can infer that from traditions relating related to other imams. But um, I'm not sure I mentioned anything uh, from Shi'i sources in that chapter. Okay. But uh, Ali ibn Hussein, uh, you know, according to the Sunni narrative, and the narrative which I believe is the historical narrative, is that um, he was a tabi'i and uh, he was surpassed by other people in knowledge, especially the companions of the Prophet. And so he learned from them and, and he relayed things from them. And so, for example, one of his sources is Ibn Abbas. Mm -hmm. Abdullah ibn Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. So he is the cousin of, of Ali's dad. Mm -hmm. So he learned from his father's cousin. He learned from some mother, the Ummahat al Mu'mineen, the Prophet's wives. He relayed some things through them. He relayed things from his father. He relayed some things from a daughter of Abdullah ibn Jafar ibn Abi Talib. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, he is his father's second cousin, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, so in the Shia narrative, as you mentioned, it's, it's that these people received revelation from God directly and that they inherited the knowledge from their forefathers. And so there's no need for them to, to seek knowledge outside their household. And, um, I mean, it's demonstrated. You could demonstrate that to um, demonstrate that to be inaccurate when you look at his transmission and you know a, a more sober reading of his history. Yeah, and I guess yeah, I kind of I, I think I misspoke before. I guess what I was trying to say is that there were Shi'i sources that spoke about him going against, uh, let's say, like for example, like during the Mukhtar's uh, revolt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ali ibn Hussein was heavily critical of al Mukhtar, even though al Mukhtar was claiming to act on behalf of. A little bit. Uh, can you actually, just for the sake of the audience, yeah. can you kind of go over Mukhtar's revolt real quick? Uh, yeah, sure. Actually, it's actually a really interesting and really important uh, pivotal point in, in history, especially in Shia history. So, what happened is after Al Hussein was slain, slain in the year 61 after the Hijrah, um, I think in the year 65 or 66, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but a man in the city of Kufa, by the name of Al-Mukhtar bin Abi Ubaid, al thaqafi revolted. Mm -hmm. And he uh, assumed control over the city. And he started to kill and track down the individuals who were involved in the massacre at Karbala, who killed Al-Hussein. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? So one of the people he killed was Umar bin Sa'd bin Abi Waqqas mm-hmm. that we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, he killed a bunch of other people and he sources mention that he would send their heads, their severed, severed heads to Ahl al-Bayt and Medina and other places. Mm-hmm. Now, Al-Mukhtar al-Thaqafi, obviously, given what he did, it's it's not a surprise that he's perceived as a champion in, in mm-hmm. some Shia circles, right? Mm-hmm. But in Sunni sources, you'll see that this man is condemned. There are traditions about him being a heretic, um, traditions about him claiming to, to receive re- divine revelation, and, and other weird, strange things. Um, you know, and hadith fabrication taking place and whatnot. There's all kinds of things about this guy. And um, a lot of 12ers today, if not the majority, mm-hmm. they actually have a, a positive perception of this man as someone who was martyred, you know, fighting for Ahl al-Bayt and, and seeking their revenge. Mm-hmm. But, but if you look deeper in some sources, you'll find that there are traditions ascribed to Ahl al-Bayt where they are condemning this man who is ascribing himself to them. Right. And these traditions also exist in Sunni sources, and they're authentic, some of them. And some of them are authentic in 12er sources. Yes. And then you also have, quote-unquote, authentic traditions in 12er sources where this man is being praised. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you, you have these some contradictions taking place. and um, But the man generally is revered today right. by Tushayya in general. Where does, um, because because of this contradiction, and uh, correct me if I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm misunderstood in the, from, from the book, but sometimes that, you know, if there is a contradiction, like say, for example, Ali ibn al-Hussein's view of uh, al-Mukhtar, they say when he was critical, it was like taqiyya at the time, like he didn't really mean it. Uh, and I, I kind of saw that like in, in the book, in the autobiography, like Ali ibn al-Hussein yeah. being critical of that. Um, could you expand on that? Uh, concept of taqiyya as well, and if I, if, if I use it correctly when I was speaking mm-hmm. about al-Muqtar in specific. Okay, so so to answer that, I'll take a step back. Okay. Now, the Shia narrative surrounding Ahl al-Bayt, specifically the, the 12 imams like al-Hasan, the ones after them, al-Hussein, Ali ibn al-Hussein, Muhammad ibn Ali ibn al-Hussein, and Ja'far al-Sadiq, Musa al-Kalim, all of them. Uh-huh. They believe that these imams were living under the jurisdiction of oppressive governments, oppressive Sunni governments. Uh-huh. That's the narrative, at least. Uh-huh. And so that, so they believe that these imams were pressured, and sometimes, uh, for their own safety, they would essentially not um, state their true beliefs, right? Uh-huh. Or they would lie for their own safety to save right. their own life, to simulate their beliefs. And so, so that's called taqiyya okay. in, uh, in 12-er Shiaism. And so this is more of a epistemological issue, but mm-hmm. in Shia sources often when you have contradicting traditions, mm-hmm. one of the, the claims that can be cited to reconcile two contradicting traditions is to say that, okay, in the first tradition, the imam was acting by taqiyya. Mm-hmm. He was lying for his own safety and hence not representative of his true beliefs and the other tradition is is the real tradition right right? and so that's one of the cop-outs that that you have with al-mukhtar they'll say well al-mukhtar revolted you know against for example the umayyads right Mm -hmm. and they'll say ali ibn al-hussein was living you know under umayyad control and so he couldn't have said anything else he had to say that he had to make that public statement condemning him 
But in private, he may have, uh, you know, agreed with him and supported him. Right. So that that's one uh, position that that would be held on this. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's very, especially like you know, in in this current age, Taqiyya is thrown around a lot. Um, but it's interesting to to dissect that term from a you know from a from a uh, as a Muslim to look into it within our tradition and within Shia tradition as well. So within Sunni and Shia tradition, and to see how kind of how the word is they've really expanded. I feel like the Shias when it comes to that word, they've really expanded on it. And you kind of mentioned the word cop out because, as you said, when there's two conflicting uh, when there's two conflicting narratives. That's sometimes utilized as a reason as to why you have two different narratives or two different hadiths uh, um, when it comes to uh, the Shi'i Shi'i texts. Um, it's 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 interesting to me to see it written from that perspective. I mean, I, I, here's the thing: yeah. the, the concept of taqiyya, a rudimentary concept of taqiyya, does exist in, in Islam in general, right? Sahih, if right. you're if you're about to suffer you know, immense harm, you can actually lie about your beliefs. Like Ammar ibn Yasser's story, for example. Yeah, pretty much. You can you can say something that's wrong even though you don't believe in it. But right. to, to transpose this this idea of taqiyya onto the transmission of hadith, it's like, okay, it's like one day someone will cite hadith for you. You know, the, the analogous situation to that is for, for Sunnis is that someone would cite a hadith for you and then there's another contradicting hadith, and we'll say, "Oh, here the prophet was scared, and uh, and what he says is wrong. This is not what he actually me believes. Yeah, and this is his true belief. Yeah, I mean, the transposition of this concept onto the you know the hadith sciences and yeah. whatnot that's that's a whole different kind of worms, Yanni. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a it's a big it's a big can of worms, honestly. <laughs> that requires a whole uh, other episode. But yeah, definitely, it's um, like I said, it's. Uh, it's just interesting to kind of see it from that perspective. So, so Rafat, let me ask you this question then. Yeah. Um, what? So, before reading this book, mm -hmm. uh, when you, so, what was your perception of of Ali ibn Hussein? Uh, what did you go into the book holding, any in your imagination? To be honest, I didn't know much about him. I knew that he was known as Zain al Abidin. Um. And uh, I knew that he was a tabi'i, that he was a pious person, but that was about it. I didn't know too much uh, from from our from our texts, from our sources, and I'm talking about Sunni Muslim sources. In terms of the Shia, I knew that he was the fourth Imam, that he was considered an infallible Imam uh, with the ability to do tashriya. But hmm. besides that, uh, I didn't I didn't know much, um, and I really couldn't. I, I think we mentioned we talked about this before. There's a uh, there's a YouTube series called Maqatil al-Talibiyin, uh, but that's not from a Sunni Muslim source, from a Zaydi source, I think he told me last time. Um, but uh, I, I, could, I could never really find too much about the, the Alid family or the Alawi family from, uh, from the Sunni Muslim perspective. But yeah, I didn't know much until I read your book. Uh, I definitely, I learned much more. You know, the thing is, so the content that I mentioned in my book yeah. Um, that's actually very little when you compare it to what we know about other people. True. You're you know, right. um, people like Abu Huraira, for example. I've been writing a biography of Abu Huraira for quite some time. Oh, it's like beautiful. three times. It's like three times the size uh, in in content. And and what's funny is Abu Huraira came like so later, so much later after all the other uh, Sahabas, yani. So, but 
he was such a transmitter of hadith, he was such a successful transmitter of hadith, he dedicated his life to that, which is why there's so much material about him. Yeah, subhanAllah, man. And the thing is, so when I get asked mm. uh, by Sunnis and, and Shias, you know, why is it that Sunnis don't know anything about Ahlul Bayt? Yeah. And, and there may be some truth to that, but, but the question is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's not about Ahlul Bayt as much as it is about general ignorance in Islamic history, right? Yes. So, so, for example, uh, you're, you're a Sunni Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure you've heard of a Sahabi called Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, right? Mm-hmm. He's a pretty prolific companion of the Prophet, uh, narrated a lot of things in our sources. Now, do you know his full name? His real name? No. Yeah, the average Sunni likely does not know this person's name, even though he's arguably more relevant than, than most figures from Ahlul Bayt uh, in our sources. His name is Sa'ad ibn Malik. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a junior ta- Sahabi from the ans- from the Ansar, mm-hmm. um, who lived in Medina. Um, and there's so many examples. It's like I was talking to a relative the other day, mm-hmm. and uh, we're from Damascus, right? And yeah. so the Sahabi that we, we know and uh, you know have a connection to in Damascus is Abu Darda. Oh yes, yeah. And so I asked this person, okay, from Damascus in my family, do you know mm-hmm. actually what Abu Darda's name is? Yeah, and he and he thought you know. So I don't know either. Yeah, so uh, his name is Uwaymer ibn Zaid. Wow! Right, like Uwaymer. Okay. Yani, it's true that there is widespread ignorance about you know Ahlul Bayt, for example, but it's just as true about any early Islamic figure in reality, right? And, yeah. and that's it's a symptom of a greater problem. It's not a Sunni Shia thing, and it has yeah. nothing to do with that. By the way, sorry, just Awaymer. Just the reason why I said wow, Awaymer is because you know, there is an academic in, in the US. His name is at first I used to pronounce it as Ovamir because that's how he spelt it until I later realized his name is actually Awaymer. But it's, it's a very rare name, but uh, just yeah, it's interesting that that name caught my attention. So that's pretty much it. I mean, there's there's widespread uh, ignorance and uh, lack of awareness, you know, regarding all early figures really in Islam. So if I were to tell you, Ya uh, Rafa, do you know who Qatada ibn Di'ama is? No, man, stop. I'm gonna you would fail. not know, right? But this yeah. person, Qatada, is a tabi'i. Right. He's a tabi'i who relayed, according to some estimates, around 200 hadiths from Anas ibn Malik. Okay, that alone... That alone is more than all of Ahlul Bayt, except yep. you know maybe Ibn Abbas and Ali ibn Abi Talib combined, you know, and, and other right. people. It's just like people just don't know. It, it, yani, it, it's wrong to frame this on uh, sectarian lines. Right. No, it's a great point, man. It's honestly a great point, and um, you know, at the end of the day, our, our religion is, um, you know, it's. It, and it's built on merit at the end of the day, right? Like the person who kind of contributed the most to Islam generally deserves more knowing about, right? I don't know if that's if I'm making sense or not. So, and it, just because someone is from Adil Bit doesn't mean he's more knowledgeable or, uh, you know, more pious than, say, another person who's not from Adil Bit, but he contributed so much to Islam. 
uh, I think the Al Bet is kind of like a stamp that they kind of just put on, like, oh, you don't know him, then what's up? What's going on? You don't like Al Bet? Oh, what's, what's, you know, they just, it's so like here's the thing. offensive, offensive when it comes Here, to Here's that. what's interesting. So, this is actually one of the, the few areas where I actually believe that our culture has been influenced by Tashayya. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, SubhanAllah, this is actually where it gets a bit interesting. Tashayya in various regions of the Muslim world spread and declined at different points in history, right? Yeah. So, so there definitely was an exchange and influence both ways, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you have, for example, in Egypt, the Fatimids ruled for quite some time, any more than a century. Right. The Ismaili Fatimids. And there is an everlasting presence they have in Egyptian religious culture. It may be subtle, right? So, for example, a lot of the the shrines that were built that, that exist in Egypt today, yeah. like uh, Ras al Hussein, right? right? right. There, there's a shrine in Egypt dedicated to the head of Al Hussein. The, right. All these were constructed by the Fatimids. No, not, even, not even that, by the way. And, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, even Mawlid al Nabawi, as far as I know, is a Fatimid invention. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I read. Uh, I haven't searched that in detail, but that's what I what I've read and heard. Yeah. Um. So th so there is an everlasting, uh, you know, influence, and it's understandable. It's not like weird. Yeah. 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 Um. No, definitely. And there's and there's interesting stories you hear uh, where where these I, where there's a clash on the ground. Yes. So for example, after the fall of the Fatimid uh, Empire. Mm -hmm. You know, there. I remember reading a biography of a scholar once. Mm -hmm. He he and his students would would go around the Egyptian countryside, correcting the adhan. Oh, so uh, yeah. you know the the Ismaili adhan is similar to the Twelver adhan. They mm -hmm. add a clause after Hayya uh, al falah. They say Hayya ala khair al amal. And so so the, it was widespread. It was widespread at that time, even if right. the people may have not liked the government. So we have this. We have this in Syria. We have this in Lebanon. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, if you look back in history, you'll find that some of the villages that are Sunni today are actually were, were Shia strongholds in the past. Right. And vice yeah. versa. Vice versa as well. And um, so, so there is an, an exchange of ideas. And Ahlul Bayt is one of the things where we, we've not adopted the Shia paradigm, but our perception is skewed a bit. Because of the mere existence of the Shia paradigm, yes, right, yep, yep, no, hundred percent. It's it's interesting, and you know, going back to what you were mentioning about the Fatimids and, and different, you know, other uh, Shia empires, Qaramita, Buwayhids, Dawla al Hamadaniya in northern Syria. It it leads me. I mean, obviously, um, you know, each of those empires were different Shia sects, and it was a spectrum in terms of their extremism. And that leads me to a word that also I saw that you mentioned in your book, and there was a, I think a significant portion, you know, of, of the book uh, towards the end of it was dealing with the term called ghulu. Um And how, uh, just kind of going back to Ali ibn al-Hussein, uh, how he dealt with the uh, ghulu shia. So just before delving into that and seeing how he responded to it, um, what is ghulu exactly? And is it uh, specific just to this context, or can it apply to can it be applied to more than uh, in different contexts as well? The term ghulu is, is an interesting term mm -hmm. and it's actually used in the Quran. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. so, so Allah addresses Ahl al-Kitab um, Right? 
Um, that's the one that can immediately come to my mind at the time. But Ghulu essentially is, is the exaggerated, excessive, slash unwarranted veneration or emphasis. Mm-hmm. Or emphasis. Emphasis maybe is a better word. So okay. it can be in anything, right? Ghulu can be in uh, hating someone. It can be in loving someone. Ghulu can be excessive praise. It can be excessive attachment to a place, to anything, really. I have a question. Um, Sorry mm-hmm. to cut you off. I just, just came sure. to my head. So, uh, like, when people say, Allahumma la tsha'al fi qalbi ghillan lilladheena amanu, is ghillan from ghulu as well? Wallahi, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. Okay, I don't know. I have no um, idea. But I just came to my head. <laughs> it, it may be that they have the same root words, uh, yeah, albeit, you yeah. know, they have different yeah. uh, different meanings, but yeah. Yeah, 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 okay. Um, so, ghulu is a, is a very interesting concept because it's relative, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, for example, a Sunni and a, Shi- a 12 or Muslim today, they will, they will agree that someone worshipping Ali ibn Abi Talib is ghulu, it's kufr. Right. Right, this is, we both agree it's ghulu. It's way off at the spectrum. Right. Now, at the same time, there is a spectrum between the Sunni and, and the Shi'i where, where certain things would be deemed ghulu and certain things would be deemed totally, you know, uh, sanctioned. So, yeah. so when, I, when I use the term ghulu, in this book specifically, usually I'm using it in the context of um, excessive love, veneration, and uh, exaggerating uh, praise. Okay. Uh, and beliefs and beliefs surrounding this person and his nature. And so, I mean, as I said earlier, we, we believe he's a tabi'i, right? A normal tabi'i, pious yeah. person. But, uh, you know, in 12 theology, he's believed to be a divinely inspired imam who has knowledge of the unseen given to him. And a lot of Shias believe he has control of the universe given to him. And uh, he has legislative authority. So, so to us, this is ghulu. Right, you're taking a normal person who's who's a good person, and you're adding these exaggerations and and vener- and you're venerating through that. So that would be ghulu. Right? Even the the Raja'ah concept. This was uh, this was really interesting. You know, it's uh, it reminds me of um, of of a, uh, the Raja'ah is basically when you know some Shias say that Ali ibn Abi Talib is going to be resurrected with the Mahdi, right? Mm. Uh, they, and I was reading that in your book, but it reminds me there was this one, um, you know, extreme Sufi group as well, which said that their that their mashayikh, that their grand sheikhs will, for his end of time, will also rise, will resurrect with Al Mahdi, uh. you know. So I I just thought that was pretty interesting how its you know its origins are so it's going all the way back to Ali ibn Hussein. Imagine that's that's when these kind of ideas started floating. You know the, this idea. Okay, so I'll just finish something important on Ghulu, by the way. Yeah, even yeah. W- within Tashiya, even within Twelver Shiaism, you have a spectrum. Right. So, so for example, um, the famous uh, Qummi Muhaddith, uh, I think his name is Muhammad ibn Hassan ibn al-Walid. Okay. Al-Qummi. He said, أَوَّلُ دَرَجَاتِ الْغُلُوُ نَفْيُ السَّهْوِ عَنِ الْأَئِمَّةِ So the, the Qummi strand of Twelver Shiaism was very sensitive to ghulu. Can you translate very, that, Abdullah, for... Uh... Oh, yeah. Forgot to translate it. Yeah, so, no he, so what he said is, the first degree of ghulu is to negate forgetfulness from the imams. 
Mm-hmm. Right? So, so the norm in, in 12-er you know, theology today is that uh, they don't forget. Mm-hmm. They, they, don't, uh, they, don't, they don't err. They don't make mistakes. They don't forget. They have knowledge of the unseen. And so, so you have a strand within Shia scholarship, albeit a marginalized one today, that said, well, the first steps towards Hulu is to actually believe that they don't forget. Right. Which is aligned with the with the Sunni position in reality, I mean, on the matter. Yes. So, so there are spectrums or historical spectrums within Tishaya. Now, some have pretty much died out. Some have, are being resurrected today. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what, 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 what when it comes to Hulu. Now, Raja is a very strange belief. Um, and actually, is one of the earliest beliefs that emerged, uh, that mm-hmm. but began to, you know, characterize the Shia. So it, it really pretty much appeared after the death of Ali. Within a year after his death, people started to believe that he's going to come back. It's insane, man. It's really insane. And uh, what's interesting is, Yanni... Some I, I've heard some say that it's a, it's more of a psychological phenomenon than it is a, a religious one, uh-huh. right? So you have a group of people that have an intense attachment to a person, right? And, and so yeah. their knee jerk their knee jerk uh, reaction to to hearing him dying is saying, "No, he's gonna he's not dead. He's, he's gonna come back." Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it happens throughout Shia history, by the way. You have a bunch of people where after they died, right. people started denying that they died. It really like happened like a bunch of times. Well, I mean, 12 Imam is a bit different because there's a debate whether he was born or not, right? right and they right. believe he's alive. Okay. But it, but it happened with, with uh, Ja'far al-Sadiq. It happened with Musa al-Kadhim. Mm-hmm. It happened with uh, Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya. Totally different Shi'i sect that emerged, the uh, early Shi'i sect, al-Qaysanites. They yeah. believed he's alive and he's going to come back. Um, it, it's pretty common, any, uh, this theme in, in Shi'i historiography. Mm-hmm. So uh, people started to believe that Ali is, uh, is going to get resurrected. And, and the belief develops, by the way. So, so today in 12 theology, it's not just Ali who's going to be resurrected. It's the imams mm. and the, the pious, the good people. And then the evil are going to be resurrected, right? Mm-hmm. All the wicked are going to get resurrected. And, and justice will be sought from them in the dunya. Right. Um, right? And, and, it, and to a Muslim looking at this, it, it seems a bit weird. Well, I mean, yeah. they're dead. And they're going to get judged on the day of judgment, right? right. And they're going to be held accountable. So it, it's foreign to um, a Sunni, uh, you know, uh, conception yeah, of Islam. It, it, it's, yeah. Like I said, man, it's just it's just insane to think that a year after Ali ibn Abi Talib's his death, that you would have something so crazy like that appear. Even during the time of Al-Hassan and during the time of Al-Hussein, who were, you know, two pious people who would, you know, and even Ali ibn Hussein, for example, you know, he said, like, this This is basically BS, like, we don't, uh, no, that's not right, that's not true, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I think, uh, is there anything in Shia sources that kind of indicate that as well, that him denying the, the Raja'ah, or is that just in Sunni sources? That we uh, Raja'ah Raja is a core tenet of Tolver theology. I see. It is one of the fundamentals. Um, any tradition that you might find where they're, they're denying it, assuming there are any, but I, I haven't, mm-hmm. like, Study that in depth that that aspect. They mm-hmm. it will it's definitely not acceptable. This is a okay. core doctrine. It's like you asking me about uh, al qadr, right? It's like asking a Muslim, like you know, are there reports where the, the belief of qadr is is rejected by the Prophet or or salah or or yeah. belief in the angels? This is yeah. a core tenet of tashayyar. Yeah, and min al-din There is no 
so it's من ضروريات المذهب at least at least okay. from from the okay. مذهب لا okay. for some for some they'll actually say من ضروريات الدين mm-hmm. uh, for some of these Shia doctrines and they'll mm-hmm. deem uh, other you know non Shias non Muslims but that that's all different debate right right um but yeah yeah no it's very interesting like i said you know re- reading reading through these um you know uh, reading through the book and just seeing these terms raja and ghulu and and it's just it's just fascinating to me and it's fascinating to see how ali ibn ali ibn al-husayn radiyallahu anhu how he really you know he tried it seems like from from you know from the source that he tried his very best to kind of dispel these um this kind of talk but it seemed like it was too big for him even it it's continued to spread and he and his progeny couldn't do much about it it just continued to spread till today you have to bear in mind that uh, a lot of these doctrines that we know today that we uh, observe you know in different islamic sects yeah didn't fully develop by that right mm-hmm. so they're they're usually in more rudimentary forms not as laid out not as maybe not as extreme right and with time they just develop and then they get rationalized and then you have yeah. scholars writing you know treatises in the in the 5th century and the 4th century yeah. um so so what we see today may may not have even existed in, in or or existed in a totally different form yeah and, and just to clarify i mean because you mentioned the term you use is proto shia you know you, yeah. you you kind of use that term so just to clarify that um and just to kind of conclude, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you know, when I, re- when I came to his death, there wasn't really, there wasn't anything remarkable, nothing like his father. Uh, it seemed like he died a normal death, Ali ibn Hussein radiallahu anhu, uh, just from old age, um, based on the sources I read in your biography. Uh, yeah, he died, uh, he was younger than, he didn't reach the age of 60, mm-hmm. he died in Medina, um, pretty quiet, normal death. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing, nothing really notable. Um, mm-hmm. Just a normal life in Medina, pretty much. And not to jump the gun, but then his son Zaid. From there, you would have the Zaidi Shias, which would would emerge from Zaid ibn Ali ibn Hussein, correct? Yeah. So yeah, he, he had a bunch of kids, right? Uh, yeah. It's a pretty big list. I, I don't have yeah. them memorized off the top of my head. I saw them uh, in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so he has six daughters, and I don't know yeah. how many sons. One of them was Muhammad ibn Ali ibn al-Hussein, who mm-hmm. is al-Baqir. Okay. So al-Baqir is believed to be the uh, fifth imam by Twelvers and Ismailis. Mm-hmm. He has another younger brother. His name is Zayd ibn Ali ibn al-Hussein. Mm-hmm. Right? And Zayd revolted um, in the city of Kufa against Umayyad authorities around the year 122-121 Hijri. Mm-hmm. He revolted, and so uh, you know later the the Zaydi Shi'i sect emerged and and claimed or or ascribed themselves to him. Um, and then from from their descendants, they're just branching out. There's a bunch of Shi'i sects. So, for example, after the death of Jafar al-Sadiq, you have a bunch of sects branching out. Mm-hmm. You have you have people that are al-Waqifa. Mm-hmm. They paused. They, they did not believe there was an Imam after Jafar. I just stopped at Jafar. Okay. You have al-Fat. You have al-Fathiyah, believed in Abdullah al-Aftah. You have mm-hmm. uh, al-Qatiyah. You know, you have Twelvers who believed in Musa, who, mm-hmm. who later became the Twelvers, right? They, so they believed in this person as the Imam. And then you have people 
who believed in uh, Ismail ibn Jafar. Ismailis. Right. Right? So right. It, it really continues to branch off. Yani every, every single imam dying is a pivotal point where, where new sects start to emerge. Yeah, branch it's, out. it's fascinating, man. Honestly, like, <laughs> even not even the imams. I mean, even during the Fatimis, uh and uh, I think the Druze, they start venerating Al-Hakam bi Amrillah, who was a oh, yeah. Fatimis, you know, ruler. So it starts even getting, like, even more, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, heterodox and just... You know, it's it's just interesting to see how it continues to just branch out more and more and more and more and more into these little tiny subsects, all that emerged from this political concept initially called Tashayya. Um, you know, interestingly, yeah, man, Druze are really interesting, like everything about them. And Ismailis in general, during the, the Fatimid reign, they actually eventually split into two sects. Mm -hmm. So so Ismailis today are not one sect. Mm -hmm. um, you have Al Nizaris, right? Al Nizariya. Yeah. Um, they are the Ismailis of Syria, for example. We have yeah. uh, an Salamiyah, Musyaf, Musyaf, Salamiyah, their areas. So they're they're Nizari Ismailis. Um, right. You have some in uh, in India. The, they're called Aghanis today. Right. Aghan. Aghanis are loaded, man. Mashallah. Yeah. <laughs> you ever see their uh, in what aspect and like like monetary like money like funds they're they're very well off yeah they, they have a united fund and, and they're pretty organized so you have yeah. Aghanis branching out from nizar during yep. the fatimid reign and then yep. you have al uh, other ismailis who believed in the imam of al musta'li billah and so they're they're called al musta'liya yep. and so that would be the the ismailis and uh, that are called buhra buhra ismailis yep. You have the Ismailis in, in Yemen, in South Saudi Arabia, Najran. I'm telling you, man, this will never end. <laughs> this and will it, never end. You know what's interesting, though? We're actually yeah. experiencing uh, one right now, a new split. Really? So um, there is this new movement in the city of Basra, in Iraq. Okay. That is a 13er th movement. No way. Yeah, it's pretty controversial. Okay. Um, I think Wait, is it uh, Sarahi? Sarhi is 12er. Okay, okay. Um, you know, he's a traditional Shi'i guy, just some po political you know, differences, differences and whatnot. Okay. But uh, no, uh, you have Ahmed ibn al Hassan, I think is his name, and Basra. Mm -hmm. He's now being claimed to be uh, a descendant of the Imam, if I'm not mistaken, of Al Mahdi. And there are 13ers today. Like, I, I, the Shi'i Marji'iyya is ferociously combating it. Yeah. yeah, they're you know responding to it, addressing their arguments, but uh, who knows? Who knows? Like there are actual people here in the West that have converted to thirteenism. That's been influenced by that. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, just because since you mentioned Al Mahdi, uh, and since you know we're talking about Ali ibn Hussein, Al Mahdi is going to come based on the hadith that we have in our Sunni sources. He will come from Al Hassan, correct? Not through Al Hussein. Or is there you know, kind of a... You know, there's actually nothing authentic from the Prophet about the Mahdi, except okay. two, two plausible traditions. Okay. Um, and I mention this so many times because I always get asked about it. And you're going like, to annoy a lot of people, man, right now. <laughs> you know, the Mahdi, I've, I've written about this in, uh, in my book on the signs of the hour. Okay. The Mahdi, there, there's two plausible traditions about the Mahdi. 
One of them is uh, hadith from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, mm-hmm. where he essentially says, um, uh, the hour will not come until a man from my household uh, you know, rules the land and fills it with justice and benevolence, just as it was filled with evil and tyranny. Mm-hmm. That's it. Very, very vague and ambiguous hadith. Mm-hmm. And then you have a tradition from uh, Ibn Mas'ud, where he says the same thing as Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, mm-hmm. but he he adds, it's added, uh, details added, where he says that his name matches my name and his father's name matches my father's name. So Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Okay. Now that hadith is plausible. Some people weaken it and some people authenticate it. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then everything else about the Mahdi is sayings of the Sahaba, a few, very few sayings. Then you have most of the discussions about the Mahdi and the details and uh, everything that's said about him stems mm-hmm. from the generation of the Tabi'in. Interesting. Pretty much. Very interesting. Yeah, no, it's uh, like I said, I was just cu- curious because there is always that kind of uh, there's. I mean, I've heard from from multiple people saying that because Al Hassan, who would be the uncle of Ali ibn Hussein, you know, because he was able to do peace been yeah. between two, you know, uh, two parties of Muslims between Muawiyah and himself, that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala was going to bless him through his progeny, through his lineage, Al Mahdi. But clearly, that's not really. That's not uh, reliable, correct? I've heard that. I've heard that. And, and okay. what it most likely is, I haven't studied it in depth, but it most likely yeah. is a saying of a tabi'i or someone after him. Okay. And okay. Um, subhanAllah, man. I mean, you have people believing at one point that the Mahdi is going to f- come from the descendants of Al-Abbas. Right. Right. So it, right. It's, it's not, we don't actually have as much information about this figure yes. as, as people think. And rightfully so. I mean, he's given much more... Uh, attention and significance mm-hmm. than than he, he really deserves mm-hmm. you know it, what the mahdi is essentially is just a sign of the signs of the hour he's gonna come and he's gonna do certain things and that's it yeah. like there's a bunch of hadith like this they don't right. get the, as much attention as this this figure that people attach to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no it's um like i said i mean the mahdi is it's, it's always debated and muslims get very excited debating the mahdi but it's always to it's always good to go back to reliable hadith and uh, to check with the sources. And sometimes you know things get a little bit lost here and there with people adding things here and subtracting things there. But you know, like I said, it's always good to go back to scholars and and uh, people of of knowledge to check up on that. Um, honestly, man, this discussion can go on for hours and hours. But I think we covered this book really well. Alhamdulillah. Um, Ali ibn Hussein, the biography written by Abdullah al-Rabat was honestly a great book uh, written, like I said, there is very few books in English written by Sunni Muslims about Alawi figures, uh, people from Ali ibn Abi Talib's uh, basically lineage, his children and grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. So it's good to hear, it was very beneficial and I recommend everybody to read it and uh, to purchase it and read it. Um, because as Muslims, um, I think it's it's crucial to have a general idea of the Prophet Muhammad's household and uh, know their uh, know al bit a little bit more and to know it from a historical perspective and make sure that all the material that we get are coming from uh, reliable sources to the best that we can. Inshallah, uh, Abdullah, I want to thank you so much for coming on to my first episode. It's been great. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and reward you.
And uh, I hope to see more books written from you, inshallah. It's my pleasure, inshallah, inshallah. Allah, you better speak. Okay, assalamu alaikum. Alaikum, assalamu alaikum.